Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, one of the greatest to ever do it, you may know him as Tony Reflex, you may know him as Tony Kadena, you may know him as Tony Montana, you may know him as Tony Adolescent. From the band, The Adolescents, from The Abandoned, from A-D-Z, a true lifer, and today we are calling him Tony B. That is right, Tony is here on the show, and this is a good one. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer, and normally guest booker extraordinaire, but I'll explain how this one came to be in a second. Tristan Abraham, I love you, Tristan. Thank you for everything you do for the show. And actually the guy that keeps this show going, because there's many times where I call Tristan and I'm like, yeah, let's just call it a day. And uh, Tristan is really the guy that keeps this train on the track. So Tristan, thank you for everything you do. And he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Left4Damien. If you want to support the show, and please support the show. This has been a real rough week with having to replace technologies. Uh, you can pick up a t-shirt at Turned at a Punk. Dot com And thank you to everyone that has done that. It really does uh, help keep the lights on or, or the computer running or the uh, all the other stuff that broke this week. There's been a lot of shit crapping out on me lately. It's been a, been a rough couple weeks. Uh, and you can also support the show by telling all your friends about it and subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes. Uh, yeah, no, no, that, that's it, right? I think that's that for that. Okay. I play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. You can find out more information about our uh, tour coming up in the sort of southwest mountain region of the United States, I guess. I guess we mountain time zone tour uh, over at fuckedup.cc. We also have a bunch of records and, and merch and all sorts of stuff that you can find a link to our store and pick up uh, over there and check out the band. All right, on to today's show. As I said off the top, today on the show, the God. Actually, before we get to that, <laughs> sorry. Uh, also, the wrestlers is now on Tubi. I don't make anything from it showing up in other places or people watching in other places, but I do really want people to check it out because it's still one of the things I'm most proud of being involved in. Uh, the wrestlers was a TV show that I made about professional wrestling, looking at it all over the world, and I know in Canada and the U.S. right now, you can watch it on Tubi. If you can see it anywhere else, see it. Um, because once again, I'm not making any money off it, so don't worry about buying it and sending me a check or anything. Uh, just watch it, because I'm, I'm really happy with this thing and really proud of this thing, and I, I want people to see it. All right. Last plug. On to today's show. Today on the show, as I said off the top, the former Tony Adolescent, the former Tony Reflex, the former Tony Kadena. There's a bunch that I'm leaving off that list, but now he is Tony B., and he is one of the greatest vocalists to ever do this in punk and hardcore. As I said, you might know him from The Adolescents. He also played in a super underrated band called The Abandoned that I strongly recommend checking out their records. And uh, later on, he played in the great kind of garage rock punk band, ADZ. He's done collaborations with, with tons of people and tons of different bands over the years. And really is one of the coolest people to ever do it. I think anyone that's ever met Tony knows how humble and down to earth and just approachable he is and just the, the 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 true embodiment of what someone in this genre should be and that could be someone who's just starting in this genre or, or a legend like we should all kind of remain that grounded and, and that i don't know cool 
Uh, this came to be because friend of the show, another person who is a, a, a true mensch, uh, Brad Logan, uh, came to me and said, would you want Tony from the adolescents to come on the show? Brad, of course, in addition to playing in F minus and playing in various other groups over the years is now playing in the adolescents and they were driving in the van and he texted me and he said, Tony's beside me and wants, you know, if you want him on the show, he's, he's down to come on. I couldn't write back fast enough. My, my fat little thumbs didn't, were not able to keep up with the thoughts in my brain. Uh, and so Brad made it happen. Thank you, Brad, for doing this. Yeah, I don't really want to ramble on because it's a nice long one and we kind of go all over the place in it. Uh, there is one thing that I do have to add. While we were talking about this person, um, sadly, they they actually passed away shortly thereafter. Eddie Egan, uh, a great record label runner. His name comes up on the show and, and a huge important person in Tony's life has passed away. And so rest in peace, Eddie. And thank you for the the records you put out and, um, and my condolences go out to his friends and family uh, on losing him because he sounds like a really wonderful person. Also, the adolescents have uh, reissues coming out of Crop Duster and Manifest Destiny. Uh, they will be available next week on the Concrete Jungle record label and they're going to be on gold vinyl and pick them up because once again, adolescents, not a bad record in that catalog, a, a band that has continued to put out amazing stuff. Check out all of Tony's bands. Like, my gosh, we didn't even get to ADC, as you're going to hear. Anyway, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. This is a long one, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the great Tony B on Turned Out of Punk. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, as I was just telling you off the air, we got to thank guest booker the great brad logan for setting this up but uh when brad reached out and was like hey do you want tony to come on the show i i couldn't type my fat little finger thumbs could not move fast enough to type back yes because this is a a big episode for me we were listening to uh some of your podcasts in the van we were on a drive from california to new mexico which is a you know a lot of miles mm -hmm. and uh so we were listening to to a couple of your podcasts and i said to to brad really really like the way this guy asks questions he knows his topic really well especially when it comes to southern california punk and he said i know this guy and I went, <laughs> really so star super super booker brad to the rescue for sure absolutely and like you know, we played that show together years ago in, in the Basque country. And, uh, but, but like, I, I didn't really, it's never appropriate to really punish someone backstage when you're playing with them. You know, there's like a certain level of decorum <laughs> that you have to have, you know? Uh, so now I feel like all the gloves are off. And so get ready because this is a barrage That's of questions right. I was holding back that night. Because punishing by podcast is totally okay. <laughs> exactly. Punishing by merch table, not so much. Punishing by podcast is a-okay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, oh, I, God, bless, God bless the, 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 God bless the, the uh, punisher at the, at the merch booth. Because bless his heart, all he wants is, is just to talk forever and doesn't realize that there's still, still work going on all around him <laughs> <laughs> well that's what i've come to realize from doing this show is that one generation's punisher is the next generation's 
uh, you know, person in a band in a lot of cases. You know, or or historian, mm-hmm. or because uh, usually that person, that that one person that really wants to monopolize time, <laughs> really um, is really a, a fan with lots of questions and lots of information. That's it. That's a historian in the making. That's a, that's the next writer of books and 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 creator of fanzines, right? Maker of movies. Well, so. or, or or like yourself, like you know, like a. Uh you know, like someone that's a student of this music. Yeah. You know, like someone who's like researches it, wants to find out more stuff. And that's, yeah. Like, as you say, bless the punishers and, and I'm going to let the punishing commence. (laughs) So I got to start it off the way they all start (laughs) off. (laughs) Tony, how did you get in a punk for the first time you ever came across the genre? Wow, you know what? Um, the very first time was I saw this little tiny, like little tiny blurb in a in a like a throwaway uh, newspaper, and it was a it was a review of of the Ramones album, and they really focused on on how it cost a thousand dollars and. Um, you know, what a great record it was, you know, considering the amount of money that went into it and, you know, on and on and on. So that was my first real, like, you know, in looking back, that was the first thing that was, would be called punk rock that, 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 uh, that kind of spurred my, my interest in this subgenre of, of rock and roll. So how much awareness did you have of That's like, start. Oh, sorry. How much awareness did you have of like all that kind of like Southern California proto-punk that was kind of also happening around the same time, like Zolar X and Imperial Dogs and, and all that kind of stuff? Well, you know, Zolar X, I had absolutely no knowledge of um, early on. Um, um, the Imperial Dogs, I would have only, I only knew of them because of the Blue Oyster Cult song. Um, and so, you know, so there was that tangent. So I knew that there was this band that that this that wrote this this piece of the song. But the Runaways, of course, were were a band that um, um, you know, pro, you know, as far as proto-punk bands go, that that were local and that were on my radar as a as a teenager, you know, 13 years old, of course, you know. Of, group of four beautiful women is is bound to um, um a, to appease to a 13 year old male it's you know in 1976 what about like you know it's i find it interesting because you know proto-punk i find is also kind of regional and talking to a lot of people from southern california mm-hmm. i found that they the doors are always kind of thrown around as being like a band that was weirdly like a proto-punk band Right, right, and I and I love the Doors, and uh, but I never really considered them as you know considered them, you know, on the same you know in the same light as say the Seeds, mm-hmm. or um, you know, they, you know where, so I, when I think of proto punk bands, I almost think of like bands that are that that are garage bands, and um, love, um, you know, bands that that um, the Doors. Uh, I kind of put them in a, in a, in a category with, you know, 
you know other other 60s bands like um jefferson airplane or uh, <laughs> the seeds or love um there were you know um with uh, uh i never really you know what it is i guess it's the keyboards that really that really made me kind of disassociate them from um what i what in my closed little mind uh considered punk rock mm -hmm. you know or proto-punk um even though they were certainly the 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 the, the um when you have pro i guess here's here's where i'm at you have a band like the Stooges who really looked up to the Doors. The Stooges were a proto-punk band. The Doors were a 60s rock and roll band. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I didn't see them as being um, in the same in the same um, ballpark as bands like The Seeds or Love. They just weren't, you know, those those bands struck me as more garage and punk rock bands than, say, The Doors did. They were too jammy, and when you start getting into jam, like long jams, I think it kind of loses the um, the what I associate punk rock with, which is songs that are around two to three minutes long. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you're bringing up like getting into the really ones and 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 poetry and all this other bullshit. It just <laughs> it became something that I don't really consider proto punk. I consider it artsy fartsy shit. But it's funny how that's I, almost God bless them. I love the first, I love the first Doors album. Uh, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. But after that, I don't think that they, they came ever, ever came close to touching it again. Even with some really great catalog songs, I don't think they were ever able to come anywhere near that first record, which is just stunning. Uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting when you like feel like you brought that poetry side of things, and it's almost like that's the other helix that's going into this double helix that creates punk where you have this sort of like you know like like just straight up rock and roll like street rock and roll meets this sort of like high flutin arts and artsy fartsy poetry like patty smith like i guess would also be someone who was probably influenced a little bit by the right. doors or, or would reference the doors you know and and, and the velvet underground certainly as well right like it, you know like and it's almost like these two things coming together is is what creates this this moment where you have I guess punk. Yeah. You know, I never really considered that that the Velvet Underground, the doors would be contemporaries and would certainly consider the Velvet Underground a, a proto-punk band. So um so maybe I'm uh maybe I'm 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 gonna eat my hat on this and say, <laughs> yeah, the doors would qualify as the proto-punk band under under a lot of these uh using a lot of these examples. I think that's the whole thing about this podcast. <laughs> the awakening? Well, no. I think the whole thing about this podcast is me just trying to put as much stuff under the punk umbrella as possible. Well, you know what? I have to say that, you know, uh, um, I agree with you. I think that that there's, you know, that there's a, a certainly an argument to be made for the doors as a proto-punk band. <laughs> you drink dynamite in the evening, so... <laughs> How about yourself? Like, where did you kind of go from seeing this Ramones uh, at our review thing? Where was actually the first concert you went to? You know what? The first concert that I went to was a Cheap Trick concert. I went to see Cheap Trick and they 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 played uh, in Long Beach near near where I lived. And um, and they were fantastic. And 
the support band was Nick Gilder. And he had a huge hit at the time with Hot Child in the City, which um, um, was, uh, was, you know, I don't know. I think it was an international hit. I don't think it was just uh, regional, but, um, mm -hmm. um, but that was uh, the first concert first like proper concert that I that I recall going to when I was young I mean my my mother was a hippie so I saw you know bands in the parks and stuff during the 60s but um I, w I don't recall any of that stuff I just know that they that they happened because she told me maybe you saw love maybe or <laughs> or may you know I always like to think that I saw you know Moby Grape or or you know somebody <laughs> like that, you know Jefferson Airplane, um, um, you know some surprise, some you know some surprise concert by some, you know, because it was they 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 had free. She called them; they were lovins. They had lovins in the park, so um, um, she would take me down to see the bands, you know, all the time. While she lived there, my father was in the navy, which was an interesting interesting dichotomy to be in the armed services you know uh, living in the city during the summer of love so it was a you know was a, my parents had a very interesting but short-lived marriage mm -hmm. and um i have to i have to think that part of it was just just the those those, those cultural uh, differences that were starting to come into play interestingly he would be the one that would run off and 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 live in the in the woods in canada somewhere you know in a often in an aisle on an island and just totally isolated from the world for a while so seemed more like the hippie than my mother did well i guess it, yeah especially at that time there couldn't have been a bigger i guess cultural divide between a hippie and someone in the armed services during that, that right, period right. it it's also fascinating that period where you look at um the kind of effects of charles manson and the the long-term effects it had on youth culture in southern california like all over america but i really kind of well, feel like punk is where it finally kind of shows up again and it's a fight right cops try and suppress it and it's yeah it's, there's a fear of youth culture kind of after that incident you no know, i didn't feel the impact of of um of the manson family like i you know i was certainly old enough to remember that that there was you know this going on but and I don't think my mother would have shielded it from me. She was my mother was, you know, allowed me to read and, you know, really, you know, uh, encouraged me to to read, you know, books that not, weren't necessarily, you know, on the school library shelf. Um, yeah. And so Manson never really jumped, jumped out at me. What did was the, the, the SLA, the, the, the bombing of the SLA house. Now that. I did that did have a, a huge impact on me um, um, really kind of establishing a, a, a fear of the police and a distrust of, 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 of the police. And that's really it's really a shame, but that's how that's how powerful those images were watching, you know, watching them blow up the house from outside and then burning it down, you know, and watching it burn down while, while the members of the SLA were inside. That was really, you know, to me, that was more of a defining, you know, a defining uh, uh, cultural event than for me, 
than Man the Manson family was. Though the the you know certainly, um, as I got older, um, um, I I started to to learn more about things like that and the Onion Field Killer and um, 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 just a you know I started reading crime crime stuff uh, it, again around around my middle or early to say tweens to early you know you know early teens I, I I got over got past that probably about 15 16 when I started reading more like Stephen King and novels but um, um, my my interest in true crime stuff didn't never really picked again until much much later but um, um, as far as just effects you know musical effect on 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 my ideology what watching that house burn down really had a huge impact on me you know, it was uh was pretty pretty pre still pretty you know i can still see it in my head and it's you know when you when you have a something that vivid from from so long ago then you know that you know you, you know the impact it's had so yeah and i guess on some level that must have prepared you for the level of police brutality you wind up witnessing oh, yeah. a few years later yeah. yeah yeah oh yeah it didn't you know what um to this day when i say like just to this day today in history women are marching in los angeles and there's there's a spokesperson saying that the police are you know are are they are abusive in the way that they're handling these now this is your typical this is this is our you know this is ours you know mothers sisters and daughters that are out there marching and now they're now they're not us at a punk rock show now they're out there marching the street and they're getting slapped around and hit and pushed just like they are in, in the, the larger society right i mean it, it, this is this is something that that is a uh, horrific, you know, uh, 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 statement to make, but this is how they're treated by by the, the the society, and to the point where now they can't even have body, you know, uh, uh, body autonomy. Um, there's got there's something really fucking wrong here. Um, but when they're when they're getting pushed and and they're you know they're uh, they've never been treated this way before by the police, then those things that we've been saying for 40 years start to ring, you know, you know, they, they, they ring as true then as they do now. The, just the, the level of abuse is no longer uh, defined by funny hair or, or funny clothes, but it can be by um, religion or skin color or sexual preference or gender because at this point in time they lash the, the police lash out at everybody who doesn't uh, uh conform or uh, obey whatever the you know the misguided direction is that they're giving really if they if if the my feeling about about our, the, uh, the the situation right now is if the police had the um uh the souls to do it, they would set down their fucking weapons and join the marchers. You know, <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they, 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 they protest too, because what's happening in America right now is, is frightening.
I think sadly it's worldwide, you know, certainly in Canada, yeah. there's like a, a level of, of, uh, real tension around all this stuff again, where you're like things that you thought were enshrined, like people's right to choose what they want to do with the reproductive systems are now threatened. Right. Like, and it's up here too. And all of a sudden you're realizing like, oh, this stuff's not actually codified into law and they yeah. can take it away and it's not some sort of enshrined thing that it's just been understood to be this protected right for up until now for some reason it's under threat well no, we know why it's under threat now but right it's just yeah it's it's terrifying but that's a worldwide thing and it's certainly um yeah it, it's frightening everywhere i think right now it feels like well certainly frightening in canada too so i can i can say yeah. that from first and all we can it, it just seems like, you know, we can, we can decry it, 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 but it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to be enough. We can march in the streets. That doesn't seem to be enough. Um, I think that it's going to take something a lot more forceful and a lot more, a lot more communalistic and, uh, and, um, um, a lot more grassroots when it, it's because what it's going to really boil down to is resistance at 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 every level uh every level possible it'll yeah. be interesting to see where, where where things go from here but you know i'm not hearing the kind of protest music that i would expect to hear right now and that that to me is kind of um um uh, a reflection of either my not paying close enough attention or they're not being a loud enough voice right now, you know, saying and speaking up, you know, you know, I mean, right now of all times, it seems like it, it, I would, I'd be hearing more defined and, um, um, and forceful responses to, to the Supreme Court. I think like one thing I think that might've changed is the, the way we get our information. Like at a certain point, like I learned about so much stuff from punk songs that I wouldn't have heard about otherwise, because that was a way of conveying information. Whereas now because of social media, these news stories are in my hand all the time. And that's not to excuse, you know, I like, I, I love political music right. and I think it still plays a role and it's important, but I find we get the message differently now. And it's not like we've, like you're saying, like, people have been talking about this stuff for 40 years in punk and there are conversations that have been happening in punk, not just negative conversations, like positive conversations too, that I think, you know, you see now the rest of society is kind of catching up to, or at least are having in the same way we've been having in punk rock for years. And, right. uh, you know, and I feel like, yeah, it just, it's, I don't know. I just feel like this, maybe the functions changed. I don't know. It's, it's interesting because you're right. Like you would think that political music right now, or maybe kids just realize that political music gets co-opted too, and they, they can't rely on necessarily these artists that to do it for them. Well, you know, it, things are happening so quickly that sometimes I wonder if even, if even, I don't know, my, for me, myself, it's hard for me to even process some of this stuff, let alone the speed at which it goes by. But like um, right now in the, you know, in the last three weeks i've got i've been i've filtered out about 16 songs that the band has given me and whittled it down to nine that i that i want to use but i'm writing lyrics right now 
And, you know, it's it's interesting because there are so much to talk about and yet so hard to put it into to succinct statements mm. um, um, that that um, again, it's almost like running a race. Uh, you know, you you're you make a statement and it's it's it's. it's the opposite within, within 20 days. Yeah. So, you know, um, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see where I go with the stuff that I'm writing right now. Um, I could have, you know, I've already rewritten the, the, like I said, I've been working on for three weeks and two of the songs I've already completely rewritten. Come here, you. My little troublemaker. <laughs> oh, cameo. <laughs> <laughs> I um well that's that's what I was trying to like well that's what I was like texting with you about earlier where I kind of think your career is so amazing to look at and fascinating because you're a lifer and you never stopped writing this music and I think because of the name changes and because of uh the various bands you do you know like I, I don't think I even realize sometimes like you know it's only sitting down now and being like oh yeah he's in that band and that band oh fuck I like I forgot about that too or that record you did with like that person or something like that like it is really like you know you you've never stopped writing and you never stopped being part of this no thing. you know someone asked me once they asked me like what records do you listen to and I laughed and I said, I don't really listen to records. I make them, <laughs> which is true. Um, um, but um, um, I, because I'm always, I'm always working or I'm always thinking in terms of my, my thinkings in, in couplets. Um, I'm always, I'm always trying to, if I say something, I'm always trying to think of a, of a, of a, of a way to rhyme it. Um, if I make a, if I say, you know, um, this paper, this paper is great. You know, I, I would immediately start going, going great. And then going and putting, you know, changing, changing, uh, 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 blends and first letters until I found a rhyme like freight. Okay. Now <laughs> what can I do with freight? Well, freights are for me moving things. Okay. We'll move, we're going to move something. What are we going to move? Well, Bombs get moved sometimes on trains. That could be, there could be something there. So, you know, it's, you know, I'm always doing things like that. Yeah. Okay. Bombs could be moved on trains. Where is that happening right now? Well, probably in the Ukraine. So then, you know, then, then there's, then there's, okay. I'm not going to make a blanket statement without researching and having some, some, you know, so I do research um, just about everything that it, just about everything that I write has some some form of research in it, you know, uh, at, at some point in time. Um, but um, and I've done it. Yeah, I've done it like that since I was, a, you know, a teenager. Um, I was, you know, when I was first writing songs, I was a, I was a. a library hiding in the library from you know getting my ass kicked um you could go in the library and if you're in the library you're you know it was hands off in the library and it wasn't until the library became closed at lunchtime that 
I lost the, that, you know, the hallowed ground, but the library was a great place to, to do research. And, and, um, and I, I've always, um, I've always enjoyed spending time, you know, around books. Mm. And uh, and now I, I like the I like the internet. I don't like it as much as as books, but I do I do enjoy you know the the how quickly uh, I can I can research a topic. It's just that it, it I, I lose the, the the beauty of the paper. And I still write on paper. You know, when I write songs, I'm still writing on paper. Um, that may or may not matter to people, but to me. Um, as a teacher, I'm a teacher. Uh, as a teacher, uh, I know that if you write something, you're more likely to remember it than if you if you type it, mm -hmm. because typing is just as much hearing and memory as it's not it's not taking in an idea and putting it down unless you're precisely doing that. But as far as remembering things. Um, uh, writing it is, uh, is easier to remember, makes it easier to recall and to remember. And um, so I'll, you know, I will write like, like I'll write, this is like maybe one song that's just been, it's just being written and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten until I get it to where I want it. So when it wow. comes to songwriting, you know, it's like I I have like this is there's three book three songs that are being being worked in in this book, and when they're when I've got them to where I'm comfortable, then they'll go into this book, where they'll be worked on for another two or three weeks, and you know, and uh, it'll it'll that that'll go on until I'm done. So I'll go through like these things like to write an album, maybe six or seven of them before I you know like just scratching chicken scratch on it until I get it to but again by writing it out again and again I start to memorize the, the so that when I go to sing them they're already starting to go to memory so you know it, it makes a uh, recording them easier and you've done that for every band yeah wow that's mm -hmm. amazing did you keep all the books I've kept a lot of them yeah that's amazing yeah, that's, that's just boxes of them boxes of stuff like this and then there's the you know the 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 lonely musings of the of the of the young tormented and forgotten artist <laughs> <laughs> you know my that my 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 I, I call them my my feel sorry for myself years which were around 1982 to 1985 where I just made a lot of pouty wrote a lot of pouty songs and didn't didn't record an album then did record demo tapes then and they came out as a uh, uh, as an abandoned uh, on years years later um on a, an abandoned compilation on but grand theft the, audio the abandoned yes yes now all those abandoned songs the the first 82 was one band 83 to 83 was another band and then 85 was another band but they were all called the abandoned they were they were they were all kind of situated in the same area which was out in the kind of west cabina area um i don't know how to explain the area other than to say it's it's um 
it's it's in the San Gabriel Valley, uh, which is a, a suburb of Los Angeles, and um, um, there's not um, there's not a lot of rock and roll that comes out of there. But bands like Motley Crue came from there, and Joan Jett from Covina, so Rick Elric. So there were there were uh, a number of, of uh, great great music uh, to come out of that area. But the abandoned the also came out of that area. The Wigglers are from there too, right? Wigglers. Yeah, that was like the Vince Neil's band. That was like Vince Neil, I think, sang oh, in problem. it. And then it was uh, the guy from the Simple Tones, I think, came in afterwards. <laughs> At some point, I think. I don't know. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Going down a path. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what? Like you know, party bands. Well, yeah, and it, it, well, I want to actually ask you because it, it's a, it's an interesting period that period in Los Angeles where you have, you know, like historically it's it's almost romanticized at this point, but like the rise of violence to the level that a lot of people kind of are are leaving the scene and and, so, and shows get incredibly violent, and then simultaneously you also have the rise of, I guess, briefly Paisley Underground, but then all then you have this glam metal Sunset Strip scene, as well. Uh, where do the abandoned kind of fit in? Because like the music's raging, kind of kind of like metallic tinge hardcore, but you know the graph the the cover art looks certainly more metal. And I imagine at the time it's it seems like where'd you go? Well, you know the band; those guys were they came out of a band called Modern Industry, and um, and I think that some of these songs might have been. In, in between when their when modern industry broke up they started they had a, a handful of songs that that they shared with me and um but I'm as I recall they were they were into like those guys were into like English punk rock bands and they were into the the uh, new wave of British heavy metal so they you know there was definitely um, there was definitely the influence like I knew I know for sure that they listen to merciful fate and i know that they were into venom um though i don't I, I might hear a little bit of that venom clang in there i don't really hear merciful fate in the, in in you know in the music they play mm -hmm. but that was what they were that's what they were into mm -hmm. um so um um they were into of course iron maiden and, and um Judas Priest and the other the other bands that are kind of associated with with that, which uh, Angel Witch and Motorhead, and et cetera. But um, um, maybe maybe some of the the Motorhead energy, I would I would say, uh, trans transferred in there. But as far as me, I was a punk rock singer. I am a punk rock singer. I cut my teeth on punk rock records, and. You know the enunciation and delivery is pretty similar to you know the the kinds of records that that I listened to growing up and that I like. Mm -hmm. So you know you know even to, even to this day, um, um, I'll I'll prefer you know I prefer um, a snarl to it to a to a singing a melody. <laughs> Same. But um, Same. Um, there's room for both of them there, but. Yeah, I want the snarl on top. 
So what bands would you have, uh, what did the abandoned play with? Like, obviously your band is around for a few years, but like what kind of, you know, scene did you find yourselves in? We played, we, we I thought we fit best with the bands that we played with suicidal tendencies, mm-hmm. um, Beowulf, um, you know, what they, they, those bands were doing, they were doing something kind of similar. Um, um, They're playing hard, hard punk rock with, with, with metal, metal influences and, in, you know, metal on the edges. Um, um, so those were, those were bands that we played with. Um, we played with, um, played with the Flower Leopards before I was in the Flower Leopards. Um, we played with, um, God, I, I can't even recall anymore. I'm sure there's flyers that, 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 that are out there, but we also played, you know, uh, the earlier band played with like the Descendants. Oh yeah. No, I know that. Yeah. Oh, you mean the yeah. earlier abandoned version you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. What were those shows like at that time period? Like, cause it is, you know, once again, like something people have talked about is beginning shows getting more and more violent and more, you know, some stabbings people have come on this podcast and talked about it over the years. Like, did you see that from well, the stage? You know, in the, in 1980, we're talking about 1985. Um, I think there was kind of a lull, a punk rock lull. I don't think it would pick up again for a couple of years. Um, about, about 87 ish, but, um, um, as far as violence goes, um, I always remember there being violence at, at the shows. Like, I don't recall a time where there, you know, at least the bigger shows that where there wasn't violence though. Um, when I would go to shows, uh, before, before I was in a band, um, um, there would be periods of time where I would uh, go to a show, say at the Hong Kong Cafe and everything would be great, be a wonderful night, um, um, good fun, you know, germs almost burned down, you know, the Hong Kong or whatever, but it was good, clean, good old fucking American fun, right? Um, But, uh, (laughs) but, at the same time, I would go to a party in Orange County and I'd get my ass kicked. Now, if that, if that, and it wouldn't be like by one guy, it would be like by three or four guys. Um, so there was always that, that level of, of, of violence, some kind of fighting or some kind of skirmish um, that, that I frequently would associate with alcohol and amphetamines which were both prevalent, you know, uh, up to, you know, from 1979 to 1981, easily, you know, you know, to the beginning of 82. Um, um, there were lots of street amphetamine that were um, um, black beauties that were really, really uh, easy to access and that many, many people were taking. Oh, I would say everybody, but that, you know, that would be a generalization that would be unfair. Hmm. But let's just say a lot of people were using them. Hmm. So um, um, 
as far as the stabbings, I don't recall any shows where there was a stabbing, though I saw right up close somebody getting cut, you know, on, on their on their arm um, um, on a was called uh, maybe two on the town or something like that. Anyways, a, a guy went up and cut Mike Ness's arm. I was standing next to Mike when it happened. So that would but that was um, that was somebody putting on a, a show for a television camera. Um, um, as far as shows, uh, uh, hardcore shows, um, I think that they, uh, the, the scene just kind of kind of drifted away and there were other, there were other subgenres. You, you had pointed out the Paisley Underground. Um, there were, there were bands like, you know, I would say that the Gun Club had something going. There was that kind of roots scene we had the Gun Club and the Blasters and Los Lobos and X, you know, those kind of those kinds of bits. So that was starting to really happen. Um, um, so I think that if the violence, if the violence had been at, at, at in any of these other subgenres, they probably would have left that subgenre too. I think. Um, 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 I think I, I personally have a, a disgust for violence and um, um, and um, it's 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 interesting because it, there's that split where I'm also playing in a in a, a subgenre of music that often you know violence often breaks out at well actually I wanted to talk to you about that because it's it's funny I uh I've got like a, you know, I'm obviously also like spending time with books like yourself. And I read a bunch of these books and it's, it's interesting because one of the things that people bring up I'm trying to remember if it's in America's hardcore, we got the neutron bomb is that the reason you guys got a lot of respect from the older generation of punks is because you were the band that would stop the shows and challenge fans that were starting fights. Yeah, we still, we still do. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and that is, that, that is, uh, that is true. Um, we also, um, 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 it would also infuriate some of the audiences, but um, kind of feel like some, you know, somebody's a person's safety is a little more important than a song. We can always play the song a second time, but if somebody's been hurt, um, that there's only one one time to fix that, and that's you know in the in the now, whenever yeah. that might be. So, I guess going back before that, what was the actual first sort of like punk show you remember going to or a show that you you would classify as being a punk show i consider cheap trick kind of proto-punk too though so yeah um if i if i was to say that that would be it um the first punk rock show proper that i went to was the ramones yeah now i went to see some local bands too i saw eddie in the subtitles and some other bands but the first punk rock concert that i went to was ramon's concert but you know all my first shows were like like um they were all they were they were all around the same time um i would go see agent orange a lot mm. um red cross was uh, uh i saw the first uh, the you know the early lineup of red cross um, they're the first band that made me realize like I hey like it's possible to you know to to be in a 
in a in a band and be 15 years old yeah um 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 but um um the bags um see i saw all these bands the all, the, all these bands at the hong kong and at the starwood so it's it's hard to say like which one was the first because it was like there was a flood but the first punk rock concert that i recall going to was the ramones like that was a concert you know where it was like you know there was 300 people there 400 people there as opposed to you know the other shows that i've gone to where there might be 75 people there or, you know 150 so this was like a big deal big big thing that would have been about 1979 so what have eddie and the subtitles been playing at the the hong kong or the starwood when you saw them or was it in another like a backyard um, they show? played actually i saw them at a college the first time um um and they were playing um club 88 um Pollywog park they played at the they they were they they in a band called big wow um were uh at that that big fiasco that black flag played at at Pollywog park so, oh, so it was you know it would have been around that period of time that i would have would have have seen eddie for the first time who so, are big wow i don't i don't know big wow at all big, you know, see, Big Wow are one of those forgotten bands, and you'll you'll see them pop up now and again. And they'll they'll say they don't know anything about Big Wow. What I can tell you about Big Wow was that the guitar player's name was Max. Max, it, it, Big Wow was his band, and um, um, they played a lot of shows with Eddie in the subtitles. I think that Max and Eddie had a "you get us shows, we'll get you shows" kind of you know thing back and forth. Yeah. Eventually, um, Max and Eddie combined their bands, and then Eddie and the subtitles had Max on guitar. That was when they, and which was interesting because neither one of those bands were the beast that the last Eddie and the subtitles were. When they were called, they were going to change their name to Iron Lung, which to give you an idea, and they were heavy. They they played just these jams with this crazy guitar solos you know, and wah-wah all the way through them. They were like seven, eight minutes long. They were just, and they, they could, I loved them, but they would empty the, they would empty out the clubs, you know, at that <laughs> point they'd come out, they, you know, and if, if they were particularly, you know, uh, uh, interesting was that they had a hit single, which was, American Society and Louie Louie. So they're, they have these, this hit single, right? Yeah. But, and what they've got for a 40 minute set is those two songs and then about three other songs that are really, really long, heavy, you know, rock, rock out jams. And I would think, you know, you know, like what Black Flag started it did later on when they got heavier with lots of leads and you know they, I mean the, the lead potential was always there but where it became a lot more free flow and freestyle punk rock well Eddie and the subtitles were doing that you know that they were doing that in 1981 so when 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 Black Flag were were getting ready to release Damage. The damage was was the real damage was coming out of Eddie and the subtitles, who were who were emptying the clubs faster than they could than than uh, <laughs> people could get out the door. 
So they invented sludge. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It was sludge. That that would be that would be a, a very very accurate um, um, definition. Um, I think Lisa uh, Frontier may have released a version of World War. They called it World War Three on the um, on the um, um, Eddie and the Subtitles compilation that she put out. That is that is the song World War Four. And that that's that's late that's late edition Eddie and the subtitles. Um, the reason it was called World War Four, as I asked Eddie, I go, why do you call your song World War Four? And he goes, he goes because we've already had World War Three, so that was that's why he called it 1981, calling yeah. it World. Well, he had a song called World War Four. He's already thinking in terms of the World War had already happened by then. <laughs> I wonder what 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 year if, he, if Eddie and the subtitles made a record now. I wonder if it'd be like World War Fifteen or something. Do they? He they also had that other side project like Plain Jane or something, and it was maybe is it Not someone else? I'm thinking I'm confusing that with. I thought they was mm. like anyway. There's another LA band. I can't remember who now. Um, so when you started going to these shows, uh, was that? still this point like you must be one of the first kids kind of going from the next generation of kids going to these shows right like there's like obviously the first wave of people that i've you know the 100 punks i think they call themselves or the 200 punks sometimes and then there's like this sort of next wave of kids but you must have been one of the first kids that are coming from that next wave i was um i was we had a we had a um um We had a, we had a small little group in Fullerton. There really weren't that many of us, and um, and our scene was really defined by by the suburbs that we lived in. There was you know there's no really no way of getting around that. We were kids from the suburbs. I mean there's we weren't city kids. What I found as we got older was that um, um, a lot of what I, the people that I assumed were from the city were actually transplants that were from the suburbs. So um, as far as 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 uh, you know like time on the scene or when I got there, um, there I was on the young I was on the young end for sure mm -hmm. and um, and um, my friends and I, uh, and our 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 party scene, were was was about thirty people. So our our actual scene was probably about thirty people, and we would we would there be interactions with you know other other groups of people like say people from Huntington Beach or um, the I always considered the middle class part of the Fullerton scene. They were actually from Santa Ana, but. Um, um, but you know, I always considered them part of the scene that I was, was part of because they we would go and see them, and they were friends with Eddie, and Eddie lived in Fullerton, so that you know, kind of wove all that together. Um, I don't know if I if I I almost feel like I came in as part of a, an Orange County package, <laughs> than, <laughs> than wandering in at any specific kind of uh, specific time because my friends and I all kind of showed up around the same time, you know, it, you know, um, we, we gravitated towards each other. 
Um, some of some of my friends from that time I had known because we were pen pals. You know, mm-hmm. like we wrote letters to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I had pen pals in New Jersey. Uh, pen pals. I have some of the my some of my pen pals from those days. I'm still friends with. Um, I was pen pals with um, Rich Coffee, um, who was uh, um, in a band called the Tommy Knockers. He was back then. He was in a band called the um, Gizmos. <laughs> That's and, amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really? And Muff Rich, diving across Rich, the USA. Yes, Rich was my pen pal in the in the late seventies. How did you meet these guys? Was it through like uh, Bomp or? Well, there were these things. They were like, it was like you would, um, you take a paper and you'd, you'd fold it up, put a couple staples in it, and then you'd write a slam book. Yeah. When finished, please return to, and then you'd put your name and address on it. And then what would happen is you'd get like three or four of these in a letter. You'd write, you'd, you might have five pen pals. And um, each of the five of them might put two or three of these in there. And as you open it, you write your name. Okay, oh, I just got this in, my, in the mail. So I write my name and my favorite bands, what I'm interested in and whatever, right? Hmm. Put it in, stick it in an envelope, send it to one of my pen pals. We'll do the same thing and then send it to one of theirs. So what happens is, Eventually, you get these books, and if you make them big enough, you might get they might the slam book might float around the world, and you might get it back, sort of like a message in a bottle. Okay, yeah. Like you send it out, and eventually it gets back to you. So eventually, somebody looks and they go, "Okay, it's filled up." So the courtesy would be to stick it into an envelope with five more books of your own. Stick them in there, and then that person's going to send the, all your new books out, and they're going to get theirs back. And inside of it, it's going to be a list of names and addresses of people from all over the world who might be into punk rock. So you meet you meet these punk rockers. Um, like this is how I found out about Howie Pyro's band, The Blessed. Okay, this is how I found out about um, the Misfits. Um, this is how I found out about the vile tones. This is how I found out about DOA. And it was through a slam book and discovery of DOA. My slam book, one of the slam book people that, that I interacted with and who turned me on to DOA was Kevin Lee, who was in a band called Bum up, up Canada Way. Yes. So Kevin was one of my pen pals. And we slam books were, so, he filled out a slam book, had DOA information. That's how I found out about DOA. That would be 1978. So, That's so, awesome. So I didn't get into punk rock, like going into like showing up at the mask or whatever, because I couldn't go to the mask. I didn't even know how to get to the Hollywood on the bus. So that was not, I didn't have friends with the cars. You know, I was too young. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how I met. It's sort of like, it's sort of like online dating, right? The same, the same idea. You don't know the person, but you get to know them through writing. And so what, what would happen was I would go through my, my slam books, find out, oh, this, this guy, Rich Coffee, he's in this band called the Gizmos. He's down in South Carolina or somewhere like that. 
but he seems like an interesting dude. I'm going to write him a letter, or introduce myself, tell him what I'm into. And either he'll write back and say, hey, you know what, let's, let's exchange letters. Or the person might say, oh, you know what, you know what, I think that, you know, you'd be, you, you'd be best writing to someone else because I'm, I'm fly, you know, slammed or whatever. Um, but I mean, of, of all of the different people that I met in the world, one of the most interesting was a guy from I, Iowa uh, who was an autistic man who was into weather weather all over the world so he was he you know and remember this is before we had the internet so he was compiling stuff and doing all this stuff this and um 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 all this really wacky like weather related stuff and all he would want to talk about would be the weather and be like you know trying to talk about music and he'd go back to the weather you know you know you know different because that was his trip but it was the first time that i that i actually had an interaction with somebody who was really passionate, a real passion about something that wasn't related to music at all. Hmm. And it would be years and years later where I realized like, no, this is a guy that was autistic. It was more than just being, you know, really into weather. He was, he was, you know, he, his, he was wired to weather, hmm. you know? So, but anyway, so these, these fantastic little books were how, how I, uh, how I learned about, like I said, a lot of punk, punk rock, DOA, The Misfits. It was it was from there. How did you get into that? Otherwise, channel? it would be only the Ramones and Blondie and the Sex Pistols and Generation X. It would only be those kinds of stuff. Whatever singles, the Buzzcocks, whatever 45s were available. Um, um, and, you know, as far as independent presses and, and low, you know, like, like, like DOA, um, would sudden death would would not be um, something I would have access to except through mail order, right? Except through pen pals. So it was it was one of the best networks, um, um, music networks that that uh, that I can think of because mostly because it was the one that I used. Um, <laughs> Well, no, and, and it was it was fantastic. And and when I look at networking, um, um, you know, how people network today, it doesn't look that different from what networking networking was like before. You know, you know, our band could be your life, for example, type type of, yeah. of, of, of situation where where if there's a necessity, if there's a need, then there's going to be somebody to figure out how to do it. But this has got kind of a, it's an, it's an, I've, I've never heard of this. And to me, this is fascinating because like one of the coolest parts about punk is the idea of it, of punk being this international network and people around the world being involved in this thing. And this has got to be where it's, you know, this predates book your own fucking life. Like, how did you get into the first slam book? Like, how did you find out about this whole network existing even? I, um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The Rocky Horror Picture Show, one of the yeah. most punk rock movies ever made. Yeah. Um, matter of fact, most of the most of the people that I would associate with punk rock, um, if if you say the Rocky Horror Picture Show to someone and they and they they poo poo it or or slough it off, to me right now, right there that's an indicator. <laughs> like uh, you know, I fucking my 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 uh, my. So my punk rock suspect device goes on immediately and I go, hmm, 
because you can't get around the Rocky Horror Picture Show and and, and punk rock. They they go together, and and that those times it would be it would have been through uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show fans that I first read a slam book, and in the slam book was people that were into punk rock. So they'd be into let's say in the Rocky Horror Picture Show and into the Misfits. Well, that's not a far stretch. Um, you know, if you take out all the the uh, the tough guy posturing and shit, um, uh, um, you look at the Misfits and they're fucking a hundred percent good fucking fifties sci-fi and. And 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 camp. I mean, you know, it, some of the best, the best, um, um, uh, the best aspects of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is sci-fi and camp. So they they went to. I think that uh, it wasn't a far, far stretch, for, you know, there. And um, and like I said, once you start going off the tangent from the Rocky Horror Picture Show into punk rock and then punk rock into more punk rock into more punk rock. Eventually what happens is you start to, your, your, the slam books you start to get start to become more focused on what you're into. So you might get five books and you start to notice that more and more of them are, are people that are into punk rock. And that's because punk rock people are sending it to other punk rock people knowing that there's this similar. So again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a form of networking that, that um, uh, uh, was really, really um, effective for mm. me in, in um, learning about music um, from, you know, this would be the, these would be the, the, the days of mixtapes. Yeah. Like, not like, not like what came later on, like in, you know, you know the 90s or whatever um i'm talking about like these were these were bible tapes or you would like play you'd get your you know i would never have been able to hear screaming fist okay if somebody hadn't recorded it and mailed it to me i couldn't afford that to buy a record and if i could i would have even known how to to, to pay for it i didn't have a checkbook you know yeah you could i could wad up a couple of dollars and put them in an envelope if i knew where to send it yeah. And I don't think I don't think the vile productions did mail order. So I think you would have been yeah. SOL on that vile tones. Well, see, all the all the all the all the the, the first bands, all the first punk rock records that I the singles, um, um, you know, that were that weren't major label bands would have been on those mixtapes. So and so like I would tape all L.A. bands. And mail to somebody in Canada who would send me one back of all Canadian bands, Pointed Sticks, DOA, Nets, you know, whatever, you know, whomever. Did you ever Not connect? The Sinister. Sorry, Sinisters was... would come later. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing that you name drop the Sinisters because they have, they're an incredible band and the most obscure of Canadian punk bands in, in a, a they're so They're great. I love great them. band. Great band. Did yeah. you ever play with them later on? No. No. Yeah, I, no. I saw him one time, and the singer stabbed himself in the arm with a pen. I remember oh. as a kid. Yeah, just... <laughs> the guys in Electric Frankenstein told me that they, because uh, I, I was a big, you know, big Sinisters fan, and they said, "Oh, that singer." <laughs> he, 
<laughs> yes. he, has a, he has a self-abuse thing going on. I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I guess, another side of punk that goes back to Iggy in the proto-punk world, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what was... um. I'm sorry, I'm keep harping on about these uh, slam books, but I'm fascinated by. Did you ever connect with international punks like outside of sort of North America? Like, were there any kids overseas that you're being introduced to? Japan. Whoa. Yeah, Japan, and um, and one in Germany. Yeah, and he was a went back and forth between Germany and New Jersey, and then ended up uh, going to Sweden. And uh, so, but I would write him in these different, these different places that he went to. He was actually the person that named me Tony Reflex. It was, um, that name goes back to the, to the seventies and I didn't start using it again until, I don't know, the nineties. Um, it was actually the, um, I w- was reading a, a, an article or something in, um, in, in Flipside and the person said, and blah, 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 Tony Flex, and da, 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 da. he got my, he, he actually asked me my name and I said, Reflex, he didn't hear that and called it Flex. I guess maybe he thought because I was so strong and masculine. Um, but um, yeah, but that was, a, that, was a, my, that was my punk rock name, Tony Reflex. And when it didn't translate well to, to, um, uh, to the maggot, to, to, to print, uh, I went ahead and went with something that people could relate to a lot easier, which was Descadena's uh, last name. <laughs> well, that's the thing is you've had a lot of punk names, you know, over the years. You yeah. switched names quite a few times. Yeah. yeah. It's, I'll it's... probably do it again. Uh, Tony B's the, the one that, that seems to strike my my fancy lately. But, um, um, yeah, maybe the next, maybe this record, the next one or the next one, I'll change my name again for the next 10 years or whatever <laughs> why why do you find you you do that like is it something that um is it like shedding a, a creative period when you do it or is yeah there, yeah yeah it, it is it's it's kind of a it's it's a moving moving on and moving past a a, a, a period yeah mm-hmm. um um and this one's just about just about ready to go into you know, to, 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 to being Tony B because that's what I've been called now for the last few years. I mean, I've had different names. I was called bones for until I put on some like Flintstone style, big Brano burgers. Um, um, until I gained weight, I was bones. And then, uh, that name kind of, kind of went a lot, kind of went away but it's interesting like there's still a couple of uh there's a few people that still call me bones um um most of them probably shouldn't um because it's not a name that 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 was that was commonly used by by people yeah um and so when when they use sometimes when somebody uses the name it kind of kind of sours me because they weren't there when it was being used so i don't want them calling me by that name um so, uh, but you know, you know, just so for my friends, my friends in the world who still insist on calling me bones, I don't really like it. <laughs> yeah, that one can go by the wayside. Um, I just opened myself up for about, you know, 2 billion people saying that now. 
Uh, well, I, I got to say, I was agonizing over what to list you as name-wise for the podcast. I'm like, which name do I go with? But Tony B, it will be. Yeah, Tony B works good. Okay, good. <laughs> Tony B, Tony B. That's the, um, that's actually Tony B is what Steve Soto always called me. Rest in peace. Tony B. Because my last name starts yeah. with B, so it's Tony, yeah. Tony B. Um, so going back to adolescence, when everything started happening, you mentioned how you get beaten up by these these jocks, and you know the library was a safe space. At a certain point, yeah. you kind of become the kings of of the scene in what I've been kind of you know what I've read, obviously, and what I've learned over the years. Were these the type of kids that were coming to your shows at a certain point where they kind of like crossed over from the 30 people that you described in the beginning that made up the scene to being a much larger thing? The, 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 you know, unfortunately, what, st what stands out in my mind are the bullies, which is really a shame because, they, they, you know, they, they encompassed so much of my um, scorn that I miss that, you know, I had great friends that were around me just as much, you know, unfortunately my friends couldn't protect me from the, they couldn't insulate me from, from the people um, outside of our circle. Um, and that included punk rock. When, when my band started to become popular, my closest friends and my circle left. Like they, they, you know, they, they were only, you know, they were only in for so much of it when it when it started to started to get ugly they started to get out too hmm. so um 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 so there were some of those bullies were were the same they ended up in the scene and i and i saw some of them at the same time there were a lot of people that were those library you know those people that were in the library uh that were there too and they would be your, you know, your typical, typically the wallflower, but they were, they were there. And I, you know, and um, um, I prefer personally the, uh, the more chill and reserved fans at that time than, than the really exuberant ones. Because uh, the, um, as much as I enjoy exuberance, sometimes it's, it's highly unpredictable. And uh, and at that period of time, it was very unpredictable. It was kind of a dangerous punk rock scene. I mean, you know, um, I don't I don't consider it from the from in, the internal though. I know that for a fact that these that you know I talked to my wife. She was she was um, um, a punk rock girl in in 1980 in 1981. So you know her 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 experiences uh some of which are horrific to me um, um would have been i wouldn't have known it noticed and that, that's kind of i think the, the shame when you talk about when you talk about the violence um i can't look back on it and say there was a lot of violence though i know it was there and and i you know in, in a lot of ways i think that that maybe i had blinders on i wasn't paying close enough attention to what was going on because people have come to me and said this happened to me you know in this scene you know at this club or at this period of time and it would have been something that i would have been oblivious to mm -hmm. yeah and i think um, imagine it's a lot years old 
I was looking, you know, I, I was running away from, from a house of abuse. Um, I wasn't really noticing that abuse was going on because I was escaping it. So, you know, by, you know, raising hell and playing rock and roll music. And, and I imagine it's also a lot to take in as a young person, like getting into a band and the band getting that popular that quickly. It was fa real fast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole, the, the whole beginning part was like 15 months or something mm -hmm. like from beginning to end 15 months. That was pretty fast. I didn't even know those, some of those guys, like I didn't know Rick or Casey. Um, I knew Frank and Steve, but I didn't know Rick or Casey. I didn't meet them until well into 1980. The other guys I, I'd known from the late seventies, middle 79, I think. Was there ever a major label interest in the band or were you guys ever approached given the fact that you did have local hits like that or were major labels just too afraid of punk by that point? When we did our record, um, I don't, Lisa never said anything to me about uh, uh, anybody trying to buy buy out the Lisa front, uh, Frontier Records, uh, Lisa Pancher. She mm -hmm. never mentioned anything like that. Um, she would be the person to ask because it, it my interest in major labels is so like not even existent like if 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 i waited for a major label to offer me a record contract i would i'd still be waiting to make my first record so but so it, by the time the they would have really understood that the adolescence was a thing um it was already gone it was already done so I'm always, I'm, I'm always like to this day, when I hear Amoeba on the radio, I'm always blown away because that really, that, that was isolated to me to a point of about six months in time. And then it was done. And then, uh, you know, all the Amoeba play after that was after the fact, it was, yeah. it was already done. You know, it, to me, to me, Amoeba is a great song and people really, really like it a lot. But me, for me, it's so far back yeah. in time that it's almost like, you know, you know, it, it it's good. It's good fun, you know, and the audiences really love it and it's good fun for them. But I it, it, it in context. It'll never be what it like it was that first time out. And that was because it was silly and radio DJs would have amoeba contests and do weird shit. You know, they'd play it on, a, you know, they'd, they'd play it and, and, and have fun with it. And, and um, um, it was play, a playful kind of a song. And um, um, once that, once that period of time was done, the, uh, the, the adolescence material became a lot more serious and, um, lost some of that um, quirky fun. I think that that now the fun that you find in adolescence records is if you if you read the lyrics close enough, you'll see that there's lots of jokes. You have to know how to find them though. But you know, I uh, I uh, I have a, a I have a very very dry and 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 obscured wit, but it is there. Well, it's fascinating because 
you know, as you say, we're here, we are all these years later. And this comes up a lot on the show. I find too, is the fact that people are obsessed with these little periods of time. That's just like a, a snapshot in your life. Um, you know, just a snapshot in your musical career. And it yeah. just becomes something that because it just, you know, and it's wild to think about how many bands there were like the big three, I guess they call them with a social distortion yourselves and Asian orange. Um, and I guess lumping DI in that too, how many amazing classic songs came out in that short period from that small group of people? Yeah, it's pretty, it is. It's a pretty, it was a pretty amazing period of time. I'm, you know, I love them. Um, um, I love being part of it. And, um, and, you know, you speak of DI, gosh, I saw the first DI show that was a whole different band. Mm. Uh, DI had a different singer. Casey was the bass player. So, um, but they, they, um, um, developed some really, really great songs. And by the time they put out their records, I was, I was already doing something completely different. But um, by the time that they they put out their records, I realized like, gosh, you know, Rick has some really, really great songs and has put together a really, really good band. You know, um, it, you know, uh, it was when Rick joined DI that I think that they actually made their best music. I, I think that the those first couple of DI records are really, really good. Well, because Richard Hung himself was supposed to be an adolescent song, right? Yeah, that was an adolescent song that um, ended up uh, ended up a DI song later on. Um, but it was actually, but Casey wrote the 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 main riff and um, and the story, the storyline, uh, which is. Uh, Was which was his 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 lyric and mine were different, mm. um, but his story the storyline was the same because it was one that he had brought. Um, okay. I I got more I was more in, he was more interested in the act of suicide, whereas I was more interested in, with that song in a um, a room that was found in his backyard that was full of animal bones and dead cats and weird some kind of weird um, sacrificial uh, altar that was in, it was in on the property that Casey lived on. Um, the pictures of uh, uh, Rick holding a, a Christian death picture of him holding a dead cat. Mm -hmm. That cat was from, from the, from behind um, um, this, this house of Casey's on this property. And that was what I did with Richard Hung himself. I was I was writing about singing about that stuff, where Casey was more focused on the actual storyline of somebody committing suicide. I was more intrigued actually by yeah yeah that okay I understand that but this and that the, there's a whole the whole on the adolescence uh, thing. There's this whole ramble on on there where i'm talking about secret rooms and that's all that that's all the uh the uh the lyric is all uh in regards to this this um weird room that that was on the property um 
just a little just a little tidbit a little little micro micro bit on one song but a lot of great music history out of a very creepy sounding room yeah it was <laughs> When, uh, you know, because everything starts going a little bit goth, not everything, but there's there's sort of this like goth tinge to a lot of that stuff around that time. Um, by that point, you're you're already kind of focused on the abandon at, at that moment. Like, are yeah. you kind of already going yeah. to that kind of thing? Yeah. When, when Once the adolescence broke up for real the first time, <laughs> um, the... Um, um, the music I went to make was was like hard rock. It was the hard punk rock and roll, um, um, and that would be where I pretty much would stay for a long, long time. Um, even now, even now, um, um, even now, I'm into making hard rock records. So, um, um, Sun and Sail Club would be probably a good example of the last one that I did. Um, um, and that one was a lot more of a hard rock record because those guys are hard rock band. Hard rock dudes. Yeah, totally. And uh, I'm hoping to make another record with those guys. That would be great. But, oh, but uh, we, uh, Scott Reeder bass uh, recorded the new Adolescence record. So we're mixing it right now. And uh, but Scott Reeder uh, uh, recorded it. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds fucking amazing. Yeah. So, did the scenes cross over when you're playing these shows with a band? And you mentioned, you know, some of the bands you would play with, but did that cross over at all with that sort of DI, I guess the uh, TSOL Orange County stuff at all? None of those people wanted to play. You know, the the, the truth is, you know, they, they they haven't said it, but Jack Grisham was probably the, the most honest person who flat out told me that he, he didn't like my bands. He just said, I don't like your bands. At least he was honest. Um, um, Adolescence too? I don't, I don't, I don't like his either. So it was, it worked out. (laughs) (laughs) I loved his well, but his other stuff, I get it. I understand. He, he, he must've have pictured me in one kind of band and the same as I pictured him in one kind of band. So, you know, I get it. Um, yeah. But um, um, no, none of the bands seemed particularly interested in what I was doing. Um, I don't know if it, it was that the styles were too far removed or if that we they didn't think that we would draw um, um, or if, if um, um, I burned the bridges, you know, mm. my behavior, you know, at different times was was um self-indulgent and um i think self-indulgent is a good way to put it um entitled i thought that i just deserved things that didn't have to really work for them and um um so if it required selling tickets or or you know getting flyers out so that people would walk them through the door that was work and i was wasn't wasn't inclined to do that kind of work um which is funny because i was a hard-working person but when it came to music i always considered it a a bit of a hobby and Mm. so um um my expectations for how much work i would put into it were were limited by by my my own 
ex my own limited expectations or or my uh, overreaching my own importance. Well, as a fellow lead singer, that's not lead singer work, Tony. So don't worry. You're 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 absolved of all the guilt on that. <laughs> oh, if there's guilt to be had, I will get. I will definitely carry it. So this is Catholic. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it. Let me give me the guilt. Uh, the label. <laughs> the label Savage Beat Records that put out uh, the abandoned Killed by Faith LP. Only did three records, but what a cool, weird label. Like they did that uh, Heavy Dirt record and then the Pig Children, 12 Inch right. 2. What was the story with that label? Uh, Savage Beat Records was run, run by Eddie Egan. Eddie Egan was one of the two Eddies that were part of our scene. Eddie Subtitle being one, Eddie Egan being the other. Eddie Egan was a roadie bestie, best man in my my marriage, still married 30-something years later, 31. <laughs> Congratulations. Once you hit 30, it don't matter anymore until it's 40. Um, but um, but so Eddie, Eddie was all these great things, and he was my best friend. And um, matter of fact, when we talk, when talking about like, when I really started going to punk rock shows like hardcore every night, you know, really gone, gone over the deep end. Eddie was there. He, he was, it was me, Eddie, Mike Ness and Dennis Sinnell. We were traveled around for about half a year um, together to shows, you know, four times a, a week you know, for about, I'd say about six, eight months. And then after that, um, the four of us in different, different groupings would still go out and do stuff a couple of days, a couple of days a week for the next, you know, like year, year and a half. So, you know, it was a pretty, pretty tight friendship. So Eddie was a part of the scene, um, worked for the bands, um, um, was our, our friend and, um, Decided in the mid '80s, after he, uh, uh, he long story in the uh, but about the mid '80s, decided to do a record label with the bands that he was friends with and who he hang out was hanging around with. Heavy Dirt, The Pig Children, and The Abandoned were three of the bands. Matter of fact, The, the Pig Children were one of the bands that we did play a party at their house. And somebody was shooting at the house, so I guess that would that would qualify as 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 punk violence, I guess. Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> somebody, some gang member starts shooting at the house. Um, the at the time I was in the Flower Leopards, we were playing in the front yard. I mean, in the in the living room, somebody started shooting into the house, and so we had to like everybody had to drop. You know, I, mean, I don't know. I don't know how many times <laughs> I've had to play a punk rock show where I had to drop. That was one of them. Um, but yeah, that was the pig children. That was one of the three bands. <laughs> I have a, uh, a fanzine. I can't even remember the name of the fanzine, but it has a pig children tour diary in it. And it reads like they were very gnarly dudes. Yeah, they're bikers. Yeah. They're, yeah. That's kind of the bikers. vibe you get. They, they were, um, matter of fact, the first time I, I saw Kennel Mike, um, 
he was he he referred to himself as a as a scummy hippie that he talked to me outside of a store and he was a scummy hippie and I, I always thought of him more as not a scummy hippie but as a scary biker um, they were just fucking <laughs> scary ass dudes and they were punk they're punk as fuck you know shaved their heads and mm -hmm. and uh but they but they're you know they had lots of crazy friends and and biker friends and um um and they were like the probably the first band that 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 i or the first group of people and band that i associated with bikers because up until then i didn't really see that biker element in the in the punk rock scene but then i started to notice oh yeah there's a lot you know there's a lot of dudes that are that are that are bikers that are that are coming to the shows the flower leopards hung around with bikers so you know they were another band that that i noticed that that same kind of that that same kind of a uh, uh, grouping and in you know interests um, subculture what about that what's that band that uh chased uh teen idols out of town like blood spit and puke i think they're called they were like a is that, is that what it's called? Blood Spit. Do you know the band I'm talking about? I've, I've heard this. I've heard this band name, but I don't know the. I don't. I'm not familiar with the story. Oh, the, I guess according to legend, or I guess according to the horse's mouth, uh, when the Teen Idols went and played, they shared amps with them and somehow blew the amp and got run into town by this band. And they described them as being very uh, scary, heavy biker types in. <laughs> I think in what I forget which history book it is they they talk about that, but <laughs> it it is a uh, it it's amazing how you know all these things you know you pick up all, all these years later just from reading zines and reading these things and then to find out that it's true you're like my gosh I guess well, I guess I gotta pick the vibe out fuck shit piss that sounds like a the the name of a of a of a is, was that the name of the band. I think it's blood spit and oh, puke. I'll fix it in the intro. I'll look it up what they're called. They'll text you. All the all these names, <laughs> three three ugly words put together. <laughs> exactly. And on the cover, it's got them holding guns at a family's head, uh, like a photo, and <laughs> like including a, a young kid in the photo too. Uh, it is a uh, yeah one of those records that you know that well. There's just so much stuff coming out of that scene during this period like it's such a fertile time like obviously it's los angeles but i mean everywhere it's such a fertile time yeah you know i was um i'm always amazed by by you know well like um uh, john brandon just put out a record of one of his early early bands i love that kind of shit when that comes out i mean mm -hmm. it's you know mm -hmm. um um I'm always I, I I wish that I had made a record before I was punk rock. That would have been a really neat thing. I made my records yeah. that were, you know, after punk rock that weren't punk rock, but I would have loved to, you know, gosh, I wish I'd saved the tapes. My brother and I used to make tapes uh, on using old octagon organs and pots and pans and tape loops and would have been nice to have, have had one or two of those to just put out a single it would have been a blast oh, wow. well it's it's funny how like punk gave all these people yourself included john definitely like permission to kind of like Try. 
do it and especially hardcore like young people you know like you like your your voice is valid uh you should put it out and, and make a record of it like prior to that you know you you're supposed to workshop for years before you're allowed to put it yeah that was i remember my the first time i went to the studio um you know i was like 15 16 years old and the engineer told me like you you've got to watch your and your your p's and your s's because you know it becomes real noticeable um, um, in in the mix. Well, I don't know that that's such a big fucking deal, but it, this engineer, it seemed to be it's a, enough to the point, you know, like to this very day, I'm I, I'm careful with my S's and my P's when I when I sing, um, not to over overstate them. Um, um, so the word, you know there weren't any rules i mean then if an engineer had told me that i was supposed to shove both my fingers up my nose when i sang i would have believed them and done it to this day so you know <laughs> yeah you know punk rock punk rock was great it gave you know it gave me um a lot of opportunities to to just be a human being um you know I, uh, before before i had a band um I don't even know if I don't even God I don't know if I would have even survived uh, without without punk rock. I certainly wouldn't have survived high school. Punk rock gave me enough nerve to fucking walk on high school. I quit, left, went to college. Fuck this place. Went to college. My college career didn't last very long. Um, on the bus on the bus coming back from school, I was. Um, got off the bus and I was stopped by two guys who took my my books and dumped gasoline on them and lit them on fire my you know I just like right in front of you yeah yeah well yeah they helped me they helped one held me down and the the other one threw the gas on it and they let me go and they just lit it and walked away and you know those books were all the money I had I mean I had to pay for those books was in college so that was the end of college for me for a long time and um they're probably at the punk rock show right now <laughs> was it like punk rock guys that did this no no these were just like rednecks you know i call them wow. all rednecks in a truck yeah pickup truck yeah that's like a big dick move. I've never like I've never heard of someone doing something so horrible to someone. Uh, unbelievable, yeah. I, I when I went home and I brought my I told my mother I was I'm I'm I quit school and I go and I told her I can't get go back and forth to school. It's not safe. Um I showed her what happened in my book, and so that was the end of that. When I I moved later wow. to uh, um, out near West Covina, a city called Glendora, with my grandparents, and then I went to school there. And what I did, because uh, it it was I had moved from Orange County, which was you know had punk rock going on. It was a war cultural war going on, punk rock and the rest of the community. But it was starting to morph and become part of Orange County. Well, when I went out to Glendora, it was like going back in time. 
like I went to a more to a more rural area where punk rock, you know, and I was already starting to post punk. You know, I was, you know, my hair was good growing out. It was black with with fuchsia and the roots. I was starting to listen to Echo and the Bunnymen. I mean, I was, you know, dropping LSD. I was, you know, doing what, you know, doing, doing whatever, whatever young, young men do in 1981, 82. So I, um, um, so it was, a, it became a whole, di- it was a whole different scene out there. And, um, and so I had to start all over again. And with school, I had already learned my lesson that if you, you can take public transportation to school, but if you're going to, if you're going to walk, if you're going to walk out of step, um, then you're going to need to do your walking at night. So what I started doing was taking night classes so that I could go to school. I take the bus there when it was dusk, nobody was, was around and could walk home at night, uh, in the dark where there'd be nobody to fuck with me. So, the first, my first couple of years of school out in Glendora were, were um, done pretty much under the cover of night. Um, though I, at that point, I started to develop friendships with people at that school who would become members of the abandoned. So, so that, you know, it, in, in the end, you know, the college ended up ha- having a more significant role um, in, in my music than perhaps I even noticed prior to, to today. But yeah, yeah, that particular school was. So, so was it like modern industry? Like who, who were the bands that were the scene out there? Like you said, it was a smaller scene, but was there like other punk bands? Um, yeah, there were um, a band called The Dull, um, a band called Catch-22. Um, they would later become, gosh, one of them would join Clawhammer much later. Um, um, they become the Flamethrowers. Um, Rick Elric. Rick Elric was from, from the area. Um, Modern Industry, the Dole, the Flower Leopards, the Abandoned. It was a pretty small scene. Is, do, do you ever see a band um, called Modern Warfare? No. They were on like the Hell Comes to Your House Volume 1 comp and stuff. They're like, it seems to be this phantom LA band that was interviewed in Touch and Go for some reason. Um, has two singles, but no one seems to recall them. You know, if it was from Touch and Go, I would not be surprised if it was to, if I were to find that they weren't a real band. They'd be like kind of... No, like- it, was, it was an LA band. They'd be kind of like a Lee Harvey Oswald band or something, right? <laughs> you, know, one of them. you know what? I bought the Lee Harvey Oswald thing, Hook, Line, and Sinker. I believed that that was a real band until I heard the Gaza Strippers. And then I went, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, because I was not familiar with the digits. So I did not, when I heard the Lee Harvey Oswald band, I did not know Rick Sims' voice. And so for, for a long time, I thought that was a real band <laughs> until I heard the, until I heard God's a stripper single. Then I went, Oh my God, that's a fake band. It's it. Uh, that's some of the best stuff. So is I think like modern, the- modern warfare, maybe they're one of those kind of bands. <laughs> I, I think they did have some real 
foundation, but uh, like the fake punk band and the novelty punk band is such a foundational part of the punk experience. So, you know, if yeah. they are a fake band, it's, know, it's part of it. Well, you know, I remember when the super heroines and social distortion recorded for that record. And I remember meeting people at the studio that were involved with the record and it was Bemis Brain, if I recall, right? That's, yeah, Brain that's Records. a label. Yeah, yeah. And it may have been, that band may have been Bemis Brain generated in some way. Like, like some, because I have a, my, my feeling when I was down there was that these people, they were paying to record, they were, they're doing this to record this record, but it was to promote their, you know, their band, you know, okay. whatever yeah. band Bemis Brain was putting out, whatever their singles were, whoever mm -hmm. the Bemis Brain was doing singles with, yeah. they were using, utilizing these other bands as part of this compilation and, you know, for, for mileage. And it worked, you know, um, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of people would have never heard this band outside of that record. And they would have only heard it because of bands like Social Distortion being on it. Like I wouldn't have, I would have never, I would have never heard heard the the them. It would have been yeah. something that completely completely flew by, even though it sounds to me like they kind of flew by anyway. There's a lot of weird labels around that time period. Like you know, obviously Doug Moody and Mystic Records, like same sort of thing where right. uh, so many bands were recorded there that you might not hear otherwise, but. A lot of these bands bring up the fact that they never got paid for any of it either. Um, and it just, uh, it, it feels like uh, there's so much music coming out that it's just ripe for, for labels to kind of pop up with their own weird business models. I'm surprised that we haven't seen more of the, the Mystic stuff kind of coming out. Um, I, I went down to Mystic a few times. Mystic was right, you know, um, Mystic, Here's the cafe. Mm -hmm. Mystic was like right across the street, in a little upstairs in a little office space, right, right, right across the street. Now, if you went behind the cafe and into the into the parking lot, that's where West Beach was, or what would become West Beach. Yeah. So you know these two studios. You know you could literally pee from one of the studios over to the other studio it was like that they were that close yeah they were they were that close both of the some of the greatest punk rock records came out of out of out of a one a, block radius one block yeah <laughs> yeah with that club right in the middle of them yeah it yeah in, yeah that's wild I actually I wanted to talk to you like I could talk to you forever and obviously Tony anytime you want to come back on here and because I don't think we're going to get to. Uh, oh, no, and I, I hope you'll edit a lot. You know, the, I think the most important or most interesting things have to really are the slam books. I think that's that's to me of all the things that I that I've discussed. I think that's by far the most interesting. Tony, it's all gold. We're, we're like nothing. <laughs> nothing needs to be cut here. It's all gold. This is a, this has been amazing. But I, I got a, a lot more questions, obviously, but do it again another time i'm always around one thing i did want to talk to you about though is that 87 
reunion and then that okay. tour because that show you did in cbgb's in new york it's amazing how many people that have come on this show were at that that show that day and it's such a significant show i think in new york hardcore history too and i'm just wondering what your thoughts yeah. were on that tour kind of taking it all in where punk was kind of at that point um golly by then i was well i didn't realize that it had such so much impact on people um um that was a that was a, a really great can you hold on i gotta pee really bad <laughs> Yeah, I'm old. It takes like two hours to pee now. Don't worry about it. I got I got nothing but time. <laughs> I have to pee every ten minutes, and it takes two hours to do it each time. <laughs> so, you know, um, 1980. The, the one of the big things that that happened on that tour was that I saw the Bad Brains for the first time, and um, that was a that was an eye opener for me because they, you know. Um, up until then, I, I had thought that, you know, I had been pretty, pretty um, competitive, um, um, you know, and, you know, saying that I felt that we should be headlining, that we're on, you know, that we're going to be playing 3000 miles from home, that we should be a headlining band, we shouldn't be a play uh, support slots. And then the first night that we were a support slot and I saw the Bad Brains, I understood a couple of things. One was that 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 band just beat the shit out of us, and and two is that it's not a competition, you know. Um, and and that was one of the things from from that band that really stood that really stood out was that you know the shows were what was important, and um, so um, um, so that was one of the, the biggest changes to my punk rock outlook in, in at that period of time, and that was seeing just seeing you know, a band as good as they were. And they were really, really good. One of the, one of the best, I've played with them six times and they were one of the greatest bands that, that I ever saw. This was the Eye Against Eye tour and they were like, not, like nothing I'd ever seen before since. Just fucking balls out, insane fucking flips punk rock i mean singer that could do a fucking a flip from a standing position not jumping up and doing a flip but actually flipping <laughs> unbelievable unbelievable <laughs> but yeah so that that changed uh, that changed a, a, a lot of my my uh punk rock perspective i i, I understood uh, i think a lot more about uh, uh the the um universal aspects of of what i was doing and started kind of getting over myself and starting to see it as, as something more more than just me mm -hmm. you it's, know uh, at that time i started going to school i was i was in college you know remember i had snuck at night well by by the time did the the tour that would would be around brats and battalions I was bringing my school books with me. I'd go on tour, and I'd go and see my my professors. Remember, this is no there's, we're we're talking about no cell phones. We're talking about dial phones, yeah, and coins. Um, I'm gonna go on tour, 
and I'd have to go, I'd go and tell my professors like, hey, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna be uh, missing like, you know, five weeks of classes. Um, I'm, a, I'm in a band, my band, I'm in a punk rock band, so right away that, you know, they've got their, their, they're interested, you know, the teachers were interested. Um, I'm in a punk rock band, I'm traveling, I, uh, I, I can do the work if you'll let me, you know, skip the classes. I'll do the reading and I'll and I'll get notes from someone and study them. And um, if they said, "Well, my 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 blowhard speeches are really really fucking important. They're going to mean a lot to you in your fucking life. A lot more than that fucking punk rock's going to mean." Um, so those would be the classes I would drop. And then the ones that were like, "Wow, that sounds gosh, I wish I had those kinds of opportunities when I was your age," you know, you know how how clever you are to, to think to to do your studies while you're while you're traveling in the back of a van with your friends well i did it and i got a college degree and it and it happened i mean it, it, i was able to do it and um so that was kind of a big you know punk rock was a big deal for me because you know it it became more of a more than just a, an idea, but it became a lifestyle for me. And you know, I've I always put it together with with education. I've always put my music and my 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 uh, learning together as all kind of one big giant classroom of <laughs> uh, one giant classroom of learning. You know that that the the lines sometimes are blurred. You know. Um, because of things like studying while I'm on tour, or you know, even even to this day, uh, when I've had some some distance um, um, meetings, things like this, where it would be, you know, regarding uh, in in relations to my my uh, you know working in education. Um, I can do that from pretty much anywhere, including from you know sometimes the back of a punk rock club. Um, I've, I've, I've had um, tutoring sessions where I've been traveling in a van, you know, and on a, on a Wi-Fi, wi remote Wi-Fi and, um, and doing it while teaching while I'm in a, inside a van with my band listening to music, doing their trip or whatever while I'm teaching. And uh, so there's this beautiful uh, uh, sink now in my life that that uh, I realized over time, like it, I used to try to separate the two and I realized over time that it was pointless because I'm in a, a I'm literate and the music I make is literate and what, you know, it's, it's part of what I, you know, it's part of who I am and what I do. So you know, given how many people didn't make it through, you know, and didn't make it to the other side, do you think in some way education offered you like an escape? Like not that you ever left punk or anything like that, but at the same time, like it offered you a, another side of things or were you ever, do you think, were you ever going to go down another path? I, you know, I always, I wonder, you know, for a lot, some of the people that, that didn't make it, you know, in different reasons, there, you know, we all got into it for a myriad of reasons, but some of us came into it 
to get away from something else. And um, um, and when we got here to punk rock, we realized that we couldn't get away from ourselves if that was what we're trying to get away from. So I know I um, there's been so many so many people that have have gone, and some of them have been you know, students, I've known, you know, I've known a couple of, of punk rock people that were educated and took their lives, took their own lives. So um, I don't know that, that that one translates to the other, but for me personally, um, um, it, it was, it was, uh, uh, it was a great, op it was a great option. Um, I was always a reader. I always knew how to escape. Escapism was really easy for me. I could get into a book and I could go anywhere in the fucking world, anywhere in the universe with a book. So I was always, that, that level of escape was always there. Um, when I got into education, it wasn't, you know, it, it was actually more grounding than the escapism that I was used to. It was, you know, actually somebody like training this, you know, I had lots of ideas and lots of things that, you know, really excited about uh, about the world, but I needed I needed to be I needed a teacher, needed a guide. So um, um, I think more than the education was. I think that I had um, mentors and I had people that that like older people that that were, you know, educated or older musicians, you know, when I was the when I was the the newbie on the punk rock scene, um, there was always mentors. There's somebody there that could kind of guide and and redirect when when I was you know doing something that may may be potentially destructive to be redirected. So I think that more than the for me personally, more than the actual education was the mentors, not the band. Not the, not the fuck. No, not El Duce. <laughs> no, 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 not the band. But you know, but um, an older, experienced guide, teacher, yeah. uh, older uh, musician, um, a manager. You know, you know, some somebody that in a in a in a role, uh, not an authoritative role, but in a in a in a guidance role and mm -hmm. i thought that i think that those are those were what made the difference for me personally you know i really without without those mentors i i would be lost now i'm now i'm one you know now i'm one now now i now i pass that on you know young bands come and they ask me questions they, you know, they'll ask me to manage them. They'll ask me to record them. I always say, no, I won't do that. But, um, but I will guide them and give them advice and anything that doesn't, that doesn't involve contracts or promises or, um, um, or disappointment. I'm all, I'm there for all that. And it starts to get into all the other stuff. Ah, I'm not so interested in that part. Well, I, I guess speaking of managers, did you ever get approached by Kim Fowley when everything was kind of blowing yeah. up on Rodney and the Rock and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Do Actually, you want to manage yeah. adolescence? Well, he asked me if I wanted to be a star. <laughs> yes. 
goes, you want to be a star? And I went, goes, what are you willing to do to become a star? He said, and I said, I'm already a star. What can you do for me now? <laughs> Smarmy little smart ass, but it was the right answer. Definitely. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I was so <laughs> full of myself. That 17 year old me. <laughs> but that's like, you know, to go from a kid who had to hide out in the library to being a kid who's played on the radio at 17, like that's, you know, like seven, at 17, I had nothing to worry about and it was still too much for me. <laughs> It's been an interesting journey, that's for sure. Well, this has been a very interesting conversation. And Tony, as I say, anytime you want to come back, they've got pages more questions to ask you. Uh, oh, please know. Anytime you like, I'll be here all summer, so I'm not going anywhere. I'm in. I'm in. As I'm, I'm in as close to. Um, well, I don't go anywhere. I don't do anything. I do. I did uh, this year. Did about fifteen or twenty shows. I think. Um, wore a mask at all of them. Managed to not catch this fucking virus. Wood, and uh, going to continue trying to not catch it. And uh, um, for at least for the time being, I'm I'm still remote until. Until I, I don't need to be anymore. Well, I got to say hats off to you for performing with the mask. Because I saw footage of you performing with the mask. And I tried it myself. And my problem was the mask kept going in my mouth. Like, I guess I have a giant mouth or something, but I kept losing it inside it. Was it like, you must have practiced with it on first to get to the point where you could do it, right? Matt, uh, singing with the mask, this is, there, there's a couple of, because I've been doing it since I, and and it's worked mm -hmm. um for us as singers and for guitar players anybody who's performing music i think it's really important to wear masks because our fans are singing at us and if any one of them has a viral load that that is infectious then everybody on that stage is going to get it mm. it takes one fan Similarly, um, <laughs> um, the same thing could be said for if I have come in contact with the, uh, the flu or anything else and I'm spitting those out, then there's the potential every night of me infecting a thousand people. So then there is, a, is you know, the the irony in, in the masks, we're going back to, I wear the masks, not just for me, I mm -hmm. wear it for my audience. Now, to, the, the, the trick is wear the mask all the time. You probably have to, you probably need to bring your beard down because you're gonna need that bottom part on. But there's a couple of uh, good masks that are made that cup here and here, and one strap goes above and one goes below. What I do is I wear two N94s on here and here. So if one slips, there's still one on my nose and one on my mouth. And then I cover it with um, with a, uh, a, a gator. So the gator with a tightening on it, 
you tighten the gaiter, it'll hold the masks in better. Walk or just live life like that. Like do stuff like when you're not, you know, around the house, put it on, just get used to wearing it to do stuff. Um, sing, sing and, you know, sing with your favorite records with it on um, and just and just practice. It's like it's just like anything else. Practice and you'll get used to it. And then um, and then as you're as you're you're practicing, you'll notice it starts to slip. You, you find the tricks to push it back up, tighten it. You want a good nose. But the, the nose bridge is the, the most important part really mm. to hold that on but it it takes it takes some practice but um as you can as you can see and you can hear it's not diminishing the my lungs at all it's not stopping me from being able to sing um, um matter of fact i feel like i'm louder now than i was before with the mask off because i have to push harder at least i think i do it works though wow no that's amazing like because you know just at that point you know and i and i wear a mask doing everything in my life but uh yeah. just for the air restriction coming in like i think it's it's you know like you're saying you're louder now that must be building up that extra lung strength too from like three layers of masks i have a uh, i have a um um asthma and allergy it's related to allergies um but i have a um I haven't had any trouble with it for a few years now, which is remarkable. But um, um, when I was in New Mexico, it was ele the elevation difference made it a little trickier. But okay. uh, again, I, I wore the the whole the whole trip. I'll wear them, and and I'll I'll say to my my friends, my band, you know. Um, they'll notice i take the mask off at different periods of time and i'll say you know i'm really not i'm really doing this to practice how long i can i can you know i can wear this without without um, um forgetting it's there being disrupt you know disruptive um, um disrupting it or um there so there there um um I'm not like as strict as as I as I should be when it comes to wearing the mask, um, because I do need that time in between to actually breathe. But um, yeah. um, um, but what I found is that it it is possible, but it it's 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 something that has to be practiced. People just throw if just throw the mask on and start singing won't work. It really is something that has to be eased into. But I I, I would hope that you know. I hope I can set an example that it can be done. If if a person really, you know, if a person really wants to be involved in music and they want to be as safe as they possibly can, it is possible to do it wearing a mask. You know, I've, and I've been lucky enough to to not catch the virus, though I don't think it's got anything to do with what I'm doing. Partly, it does, but I think the other part is just fucking luck. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I, I went out on, on tour with a band and traveled in close proximity with that band. Two of the, two of my band members came down with COVID. I didn't, you know, matter of fact, I think in my band now at this point in time, um, 
I think that more of us have had COVID than haven't. And, um, and I don't think that it's anything that I've done that's so much different. I just think that somewhere, when I took my mask off, just happened to be at the times where it was safe and I just got fucking lucky, you know? That, yeah. That, yeah. I've got, I've got friends that just got off tour and they were, they were like, Oh, we're sharing joints with people. They, they'd spent a week in Texas. They, they had like all these things where it's like, well, you're guaranteed to get it. And they never got it. And meanwhile, I was on tour. We all wore our masks. We all tried to do, you know, all best practices minus when I'm singing and uh, sure enough, we all got it. So it's one of those, you know, you, no way. Yeah. No way of so are you ready for this? So in, we're in San Luis Obispo. And I have a pothead. Um, guy comes up to me out behind the club. He goes, hey, you want to get, get stoned? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And I go, but, you know, I, you know, I go, I go, I've got a pipe. You got some weed. I'll, let me grab my pipe. I keep my pipe with me. And, and that's <laughs> my pipe. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Um, but so I'm going to get my pipe. He goes, no, no, no. You know, here, I've got, he, he pulls out. He's got a cigarette case and it's just filled with joints perfectly rolled like with a roller and everything nice beautiful um and so he gives me a joint and then i look and he goes he goes we're gonna have a, a distant smoke out but look it's got like there's like 15 guys everybody's got a joint they're all standing about six feet apart in a huge circle behind the club 15 of us light up and everybody smokes their own joint <laughs> but together together apart together and apart it was so beautiful it was like those are those little things that you just can't you know you, you, you can't recreate them it was spontaneous and you know there was the the idea of some guy at the club who who took the time to roll up roll up a bunch of joints because because he knew that we were coming he knows that we smoke weed and he knew that we you know that 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 we don't that we don't share right now so mm -hmm. he found a way to share and uh what a beautiful thing what a great yep. it was it was absolutely spectacular and that's what makes fucking potheads so fucking much so much cooler than drunks <laughs> that's a perfect way to end it <laughs> i've never seen Drunks, they, they share the bottle. Eventually, they, they get so smashed that they forget it. They throw caution to the wind. Potheads, not so much. Thank you, Tony, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, we didn't even get to ADZ, as I said. We've got a lot more to get to on future episodes of this. And once again, thank you to the big homie, the buddy, the best, Brad Logan, for making this all come together. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I, I, I really enjoy getting to do that. Uh, all right, that is it. As I said off the top, your show producer is Tristan Abraham, and he and I have been working hard and, and coming up with some great guests coming up in the new uh, near future. Starting next week, we got a legend. Uh, 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 there's no other way to refer to this person. They are someone that really broke incredible ground in the world of comedy, a legendary stand-up, a, an actor who has been in tons of things over the years. She's a, she's a legend. There's no other way to describe her. Margaret Cho will be on the podcast on the next episode. 
And trust me, this goes some real interesting places. Margaret is a, a deep head and a true... Uh, like the, a true dream guest for this podcast. You'll hear why on the next episode. And that is it for today's show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people of different religions and faiths and races. Because... We're not talking about politics here. These are just basic human rights issues. People deserve to be able to live free from violence and hatred and discrimination. So get involved. If there's organizations that are doing positive things in the world that you support, find a way to lend your support financially or your time or whatever you can to help bring about positive change. We got to make sure that these people that are trying to take away people's rights to choose what they want to do with the reproductive systems, keep their hands out of other people's uteruses. We need to protect abortion rights everywhere. And I'm not just talking as a Canadian looking at America. I'm talking about a Canadian looking at Canada. I think there's a lot of candidates that are coming up in our next election that are looking at what played in the United States and are trying to bring that sort of politic up here to Canada. And I, I just got back from Europe and I've talked to people in Europe and they say the same shit's going on there. And so it's important that we get involved and just try and turn this tide because once again, these aren't political issues. These are human rights issues. We can talk about politics issues. We can talk about lines on the road. We can talk about all sorts of other stuff. I guess a lot of political issues are also social issues, but you know, we can, we can, there are politics we can talk about, and that is something that's up for debate. But this this is human rights stuff. Human rights is not up for debate. Uh, go out there and make your own culture, because that's what punk is. It's people looking at this thing and deciding they want to contribute or they want to change it and just doing it. And you can start a band. You can start a fanzine. You can start a podcast. You can start a record label. You could start whatever. You can, you can do it. You, you can do it. Because that's all these people on this podcast have done. They've just done it themselves and eventually, you know, figured it out. Try meditation. If you've never tried it, you're probably like I was and just, you know, dismissive of it, whatever. Maybe you're, maybe you're not like I was. Maybe you've got other reasons for not wanting to try it. But I can say for myself that once I tried it a few times and it kind of clicked a little bit, oh my gosh, is it helpful? And I need to remind myself to do it more often because it is something that really does benefit me and maybe will benefit you. Who knows? Who knows? Sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, it's dead weight. And I've seen miracles happen with people getting organ transplants. Like I've seen it with my own eyes. So, you know, sign those cards. You're not going to need them, those organs. They're just literally more work for the people that are doing whatever they're going to do with your body. So just, Donate them and see what happens. Well, you're not going to see what happens, but the rest of us will. And I think that's it. I don't think I have anything else to add. Everyone, please stay safe. Look out for the people around you. Check in on your friends and make sure that they're doing okay. And just be there to support them if they're not. And that is it. I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening.